0: Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Michelle Martyr-Cami. She is an independent scholar and critic. She co-edits Aristos, which is an online review of the arts. Uh, in addition to this book that we have today called Bucking the Art World Tide, Reflections on Art, Pseudo-Art, Art Education and Theory, uh, just came out recently, a collection of her essays. She is the author of Who Says That's Art? A Common Sense View of the Visual Arts, and co-author of What Art Is? The Aesthetic Theory of Ayn Rand. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Hi, I'm glad to be with you, Mark. First, let me just ask you to give our listeners some terms. What do you mean in the subtitle by pseudo-art?
1: Pseudo-art refers to all of the um, inventions since the advent of abstract art, in my view, um, that broke uh, essentially with the traditional visual art of the past, which was essentially imagery in two or three-dimensional form, painting, sculpture, etchings, woodcuts, anything that represented the world in terms of imagery. Abstract art broke with that fundamentally, and then uh, the reaction against uh, abstract art in the form of postmodernist conceptual art and so-called performance art and all of the endless, countless inventions of uh, supposed new art forms that were essentially I argue, essentially anti-art forms. And um, I I consider that abstract, the initial abstract artists were trying to uh, convey something meaningful in their work, but they subscribed to some very woolly tenets of theosophy that uh, had an essentially dualistic view of the world of mind and matter, spirit and, and ma- the material world were essentially completely separate and, uh, and incompatible. And so well, what they were trying to do was, was virtually was impossible in, in terms of um, the way the human mind is constructed. And they, uh, interestingly, the, the from the beginning of the abstract movement, all of them, including the latter-day abstract expressionists, sensed that without uh, imagery, their work would be perceived as merely decorative rather than meaningful. And um, historically, the... Distinction between fine art or high art and and uh, the decorative arts has been that the fine arts essentially or are, are intend to convey meaning, whereas the decorative arts are simply uh, pleasurable and, and pleasing and you know enhance our visual environment, but don't don't convey any real
0: meaning. What are two Real good specimens. You you mention many in the book, but give our listeners two good specimens of pseudo art.
1: A recent example, a relatively recent, would be something like Damien Hurst's pickled shark, the the shark in a tank of formaldehyde.
0: And that was it. That was the artwork.
1: That was the artwork, and he gave it a an utterly uh, pretentious title: "The Physical Impossibility." Of, uh, I believe, in the of death in the mind of the living, or something to that effect. and just totally pretentious. And of course, the ordinary person looks at it and it thinks it's something that belongs in a natural history museum. But it was displayed temporarily on loan at the Museum of Metropolitan Museum of Art um, to, uh, when when the esteemed. Uh, director Philippe de Montebello, was still was still in charge, and I wonder whether it might have had something to do with his decision to leave uh that it you know it had just the museum had had just utterly gone to the dogs when it uh, permitted work like that in its galleries
0: uh, so that's one example. What is another example?
1: Oh my, there's so many well of course pseudo art i would i i put abstract art in that category as well. The famous grid paintings of Mondrian and, uh, and uh, the abstract expressionist Jackson Pollock and, and all of, all of the, the uh, abstract expressionists. All right. So here's the
0: question, Michelle. I mean, you, you have one example in a famous example where a, a, a cleaning crew, Went, uh, who worked at a museum, cleaned up every night after after the galleries closed, and they found a, a big pile of trash that had been swept onto into into the middle of the room. And so they cleaned it up and they and they dump put it in the dumpster, and and they they found out the next morning that actually this was this was a work of art. That uh, <laughs>
1: yes, and there actually there has been more than one one case like that. Another one that I cite was uh, some uh, sanitation workers in Germany who cleaned something up that they later discovered was uh, supposed to be a work of public art. And they they were subjected to re-education sessions <laughs> by the city uh, to avoid mistakes like that in the future. I mean, this uh, this stuff is so incredible, Mark, that it almost seems... Too good to be true. I mean, you can't imagine the nonsense that professional art historians and critics and philosophers have um, have bought into, and and I really blame them for the insanity more than the so-called artists. I mean, uh, it, it none of this stuff would have been established in the culture and given space in major institutions if it hadn't been for the whole cohort of people who have uh, seemed to legitimize it. Um, Another example, of course, is Andy Warhol um, and uh, famous philosopher Arthur Danto, who was a professor of philosophy at Columbia University, Uh, occupied an endowed chair of philosophy at Columbia University, and uh, he treated Warhol as though there was some deep philosophic content in his Brillo boxes, which were facsimiles of ordinary supermarket cartons, and he spun a whole theory around that uh, and gave rise to the term art world as one word, which I use uh, deliberately use in my title. normally, art world is two words, but but for Danto, art world was the whole uh, environment of theory and practice that that gave that legitimized work such as such as um, warhols. only he thought he thought it was a perfectly acceptable phenomenon. I, on the other hand, I'm um, deeply critical of it.
0: And, and one thing you bring out is that Warhol himself didn't look upon his work in such deep, profound, philosophical ways, uh, nor, did, nor did Marcel Duchamp. The, the claims made by, well, what do you want to call them? The critic industry, the reviewer industry go far beyond often what the artists themselves claim about their work
1: that That you were so right, and that's something that I try to point out throughout the book is the the disconnect between the theories that have been spun and what the art the so-called artists were actually saying about the intentions behind their work. And um the mistake of the critical and philosophic establishment is to treat them as though, they were operating under the the same sort of premises that traditional artists have, and and they they weren't. And if you examine, as as I did, if you examine closely what they themselves said, it it gives the lie to the whole a- enterprise. I call it a, an intellectual house of cards that's been built up, and the the general public has. Sensed all along in its resistance to this work, that there's there's something profoundly wrong, and they really don't buy into it, so that we have a critical and art historical establishment that is more and more divorced from ordinary people. it's It's its own little incestuous world. Um, of ideas and practices that's disconnected from reality.
0: Well, one of the great commentaries on this whole situation for me took place in an episode of that uh, uh, profound and brilliant TV show, Get Smart. Do you remember that show from the 60s?
1: No, I, I, I'm not, I haven't been a great watcher of sitcoms. I tend to catch up with them after they're in reruns, <laughs> but I miss that one, yeah.
0: Well, Get Smart was Maxwell Smart in the 60s. He's a secret agent, but he's, he's a dope. It was a Mel Brooks production, and Maxwell Smart and Agent 99 uh, are investigating some spy operations at an art gallery and they go behind the scenes and there are a lot of canvases people are working on them and they walk upon one canvas which is all white but with a black dot uh near one corner and 99 says max i don't think i understand modern art and max says it's very simple 99 what we have here is the large alien hostile universe and then the little dot that is the one man who feels alone and isolated and he he's struggling to find meaning in this place and as Max is talking you hear a little buzz and the black dot flies away. It, it was just a white canvas with a fly on it that's <laughs> so th- th- there we have.
1: There are endless examples like that. Yes. And um um I Others that I've cited, I don't recall whether they made their way into this book or not. It's hard to remember what I've written where after I've done it, but um, there was a, a, a wonderful episode of the Murphy Brown Show. Um, uh, that was a, uh, a takeoff on, on conceptual art. That was absolutely brilliant. But but the the, the establishment. I mean, I, I my on my blog, I wrote an open letter to the um, the uh, chairman of the trustees of the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, because they now have a, a very big program of promoting contemporary work. Uh, and, of course, none of the contemporary work they promote is in a traditional vein, although there are painters and sculptors who are doing wonderful, realist, classically-inspired work, and they're completely ignored by the art establishment. A couple of the pieces in my book uh, discuss some of their work. And um, and I wrote a letter to the, the, the chairman uh, suggesting that the, the Met was, you know, pursuing a policy that was uh, really indefensible. Uh, of course, I got, a, a, a you know, just an anodyne response from someone on the staff. There was no real, um, you know, I offered to send copies of my work to the members of the Board of Trustees, but he didn't take me up. <laughs> he
0: didn't take me up on that offer. Well, th- this is one thing that one finds that those who see themselves as so cutting edge they see themselves as breaking through the old repressive forms of convention and and tradition they they often strike me as people who are more closed off and defensive than 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 the old school people well, what are they afraid of well, of
1: course, at this point, what they're afraid of is being shown to be fools. Um, and this is true. I mean, I, I recently, I of the final essay in the book is a, a paper that I had submitted to a couple of the principal journals of aesthetics, academic journals of aesthetics, and both of them rejected it, although they did make the readers had some positive things to say about it as well, but of course I was challenging what they've you know the whole um, complex of ideas that they've bought into, and they're, it takes a very big person to to be able to uh, allow a challenge like that to to have space. And um, one of the wonderful uh, surprises. I had this morning a letter, an email message from a, a young philosopher of aesthetics in Italy whom I had written to through academia.edu because a paper he wrote seemed to resonate with the kinds of things that I've, that I've been arguing. And I got a wonderful reply from him. Uh, so there are people out there even within academia, who sense that something has gone very wrong. I'm hoping that my book and work that that young philosopher is doing will help to turn the tide. I mean, eventually, I think truth prevails, and uh, one just has to persevere um, in in trying to get what seemed to be reasonable uh, ideas out into the world and and uh, believe that 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 it will find support. You know, one of the things that has most inspired me in my work, Mark, I don't know if you know the name Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a young uh, obstetrician in from Hungary, working in the most prestigious hospital in Vienna in the mid. 18th and mid-19th century and he made a discovery it was before the germ theory of infection had become completely established but he noticed that the women in the wards who were attended by physicians rather than midwives were dying at a much greater rate than the women in the poor ward and he he theorized that It had something to do with the fact that they were going directly from the morgue where they were examining um, infected cadavers to examining the women and that somehow they were transferring the infection to the women. And all he asked was that they wash their hands. And he instituted a policy, and the, the mortality rate went down dramatically but, even with that evidence, the establishment, which had all sorts of weird notions of what the cause was, rejected it. And for years, he was fighting the uh, the medical establishment to meanwhile, women were dying in droves. And I read a, a biography of him when I was a, a senior in high school. Now it was a, a fictional biography, but largely uh, based on the facts of his life. And it so it made such an impression on me uh, that went far beyond the medical and scientific questions, but showed how resistant people are to any idea that challenges the the established received wisdom, that there's a human tendency to stick with what is is generally accepted. And um, that that has been a great source of inspiration to me in fighting this battle.
0: Why do you think pseudo-art has been so successful?
1: I think it has to do with the fact that there is a cadre of supporting people and ideas, and the the, the art world environment has propped it up, and I... I actually um, had a brief conversation some years ago with uh, Larry Cudlow, whose wife happens to be a classical realist painter, a very, very fine painter. And I, I said to him, "It seemed to me that what what has happened in the art world is is the equivalent of Gresham's law." In, uh, in, in the mo- monetary world, that bad art
0: has driven out good.: You know, it's, it's easier to create and, and, and distribute. It's easier to talk about. You don't need strong historical knowledge to, to talk about, you know, conceptual you need all you need is the concept and you need some, some contemporary theory, or you need a political angle? On on things. Sometimes I think it's just easier.
1: Yeah, and well, yes, in a way. And and um, of course, the journal. The problem is that so many people have lost the familiarity with real work and the ability to respond to it, and in a way that is meaningful. Um, it's as though it's as though the people in the uh, the art world establishment don't really look
0: and feel anymore. Michelle, in one essay, you note that an art journal compiled a list of 10 paintings that all students should know, but five five of those paintings, first of all, were from the 20th century. It had nothing from the Italian Renaissance, nothing from the golden age of Dutch painting, nothing from the Hudson River School in America. How is it possible to miss so much of the full sweep of art history
1: this is this is what and drives me madder than anything else mark the extent to which k-12 art education has become totally um co-opted by this this mentality um they're they're really um it's almost gotten to the point where i wish there weren't any art education i think they're doing more Damage than good at this point. Although there are still a, a percentage of of our of teachers out there who have appreciation of real art and who are trying to teach drawing and painting skills in their classes, but for, but the 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 majority of of articles in the journals and the the, many of the people in the positions of influence in academia, the professors of art education, have have really totally lost their way, and I just see this as such a poisoning of the culture and the future generation, of, um, of you know potential appreciators of art. These kids will have no idea of what art is based on the sorts of things that they're being. Um, being taught
0: a, a a woman who teaches high school art uh, told me a while back that she's so dismayed because all of the arts education focus in 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 schools is heavy on social justice and politics.
1: Absolutely, yes, yes, and I I deal with this in some of the articles in the book as well. Yes, uh, they they have really it's a totally political, social focus and of of activism, and where they've lost sight of art, they don't really care anymore about the quality of the work as long as the ideas are the ideas, you know, the politically correct ideas about. Uh, sex and gender and race and class and all of all of the political political buzzwords and
0: but but that's where the passion is among arts educators today, right? It's not beauty. It's not the 18th century. It's not the Rococo. It's not the Baroque. It is. It really is political.
1: Absolutely, and and to the extent where they lo- completely lose sight. Of the personal dimension of art, and the fact that um, our lives—and it becomes even more evident in the, t- the time that we're going through now—that the kinds of issues, that uh, problems and concerns that human beings have always had to deal with, of death and disease and and loss and um, and love and and betrayal and dis- all of these things that are personal, human uh, concerns that have nothing to do with the political realm, that are so important
0: to us as human beings, and that's completely ignored. and one one thing you point out in the book, you give many examples of uh, critics and teachers and scholars with a political orientation toward art will talk about a painting or a sculpture and they get it wrong. They misread. They don't see exactly what lies in front of them. The ideological eyeglasses they're wearing are are too strong. Uh, you are absolutely right, Mark.
1: It's, it's, it's the, the, the example that I cite of um, the wonderful painting by Seurat Sunday afternoon on the island of Grand Jat and the difference between a young high school student's response to the painting and the response by a Marxist-inspired artist, famous art historian, uh, the late Lyndon Oakland. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, But um, I'm I'm hoping, I'm working right now on an article for the journal Academic Questions that um is a kind of summary of how art history went wrong since the early 20th century and how textbooks of art history have completely have presented a completely distorted picture of what art is so i'm i'm looking forward to the i don't know it's still in uh, the editorial process i don't know when it will be published but i'm hoping that when it does it will it will begin to shake things up because up, up until now um most of my work has been done in in uh, reaching general readers i haven't with the exception of a few art artist, art education journals my work hasn't uh, been in acad- and also the journal of Rand studies but I haven't uh, haven't written for any of the other academic journals, and that may be uh, necessary uh, to break through to that to that very crucial um, set of gatekeepers, so to
0: speak. Yeah. Well, Michelle, I, I have a question. When you walk into art galleries today and and contemporary art museums, is there anything more boring than the avant-garde? oh no
1: no i recently went down to um the the chelsea area and walked past gallery after gallery just shaking my head it it is such a wasteland um and there's you know this whole commercial establishment promoting all of this nonsense um
0: The, the funniest part is to read the wall text where you've got these super pretentious, over inflated, hyper serious, addressing how this artwork challenges our perceptions and rethink the nature of the human in relation to the to the to the natural blah 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 blah
1: right 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 yes one of the things I argue in the book that if if the work doesn't speak for itself, on its own terms, why what you see, then it's you know it's either non-art or failed art. Uh, that if it requires a long verbal description, it hasn't hasn't cut the grade.
0: Right. Well, one person once said to me that the best measure of a piece of conceptual art is when you first perceive it. Do you kind of do you give a nice laugh? You know, do you, do you, do you get a nice quick enjoyment out of it and she went that's a good thing if someone has to sit and explain the concept to you it failed so
1: yeah and i also argue that art that there's some of the so-called conceptual work you get um you get the idea, but it doesn't really move. You know, it's oh yeah, I get it. It's like it's like reading a card. It's like viewing a cartoon. You get the idea, and you have a laugh. But genuine art invites you to keep looking at it. It it, it has a compelling emotional effect, which which contempt which contemporary conceptual art doesn't doesn't really have.
0: Well, well final question. Michelle, do you see any sign that the politicization of the art world and of arts education is running out of gas?
1: As I say, not uh, not quite yet. People point to the uh, you know, the growing movement of classical realist painters and all. but when when someone like the Chairman of the Metropolitan Museum is so blind,, um, to to the issues, I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, I think it's worth it's worth keeping up the struggle because I think eventually, as I say, the enough of the information gets out there that um, there there begins to be a groundswell of of, uh, of reaction. To the nonsense, but it's not not we're not quite yet not quite there yet. I'm still hopeful, but uh but I wouldn't say that that we're
0: there yet. The book is Bucking the Art World Tide, Reflections on Art, Pseudo Art, Art Education, and Theory. Thank you, Michelle Marty.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. I've greatly enjoyed this conversation.